I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at Long Now. Thank you all for coming out. Um, first thing you may have, have noticed, that city was uh, generous enough to sponsor Jonathan Rose's book tour. Um, and mostly that's been in bookstores and they were amazingly generous uh, to sponsor it for everybody here in the theater. So if you have not gotten the book so far, uh, it's out there on the table and uh, you can get your own copy tonight uh, of um, Well-Tempered City. A round of applause for City, thank you. Yeah, in general, it's pretty amazing. They're, they're sponsoring things like this, uh, individuals like Jonathan Rose on these book tours, and it's actually, I think, a really great arrangement um, to really kind of make these kind of book tours work, uh, which they don't work in the old publishing model, so this is a, this is a great model. The Long Now Foundation has says the long now is the last 10,000 years, the next 10,000 years, based on the concept that uh, civilization is about 10,000 years old, and if we're in the middle of the story, there's another 10,000 years to think about. And civilization itself is a pretty interesting word in English, because the root uh, is there with civic, civics, citizen, city bank, cities. Some historians have been saying that history is what happens in cities. And in this urbanizing century, cities are absolutely of the essence, and they change fast. So it's helpful to hear from somebody who's not only a scholar of the cities and how they change and how they might change, but has skin in the game as an actual developer uh, for three generations in New York City, Jonathan Rose. Thank you, Stuart, and it's so wonderful to be here with many old friends and some new friends, and to be in the context of the long now. And uh, I'm actually going to start a little bit before the 10,000 years of history, but we'll get to 10,000 years pretty quickly. We just saw uh, an amazing film about Singapore. I'm gonna actually start in Singapore. I was in Singapore first in 1979, and um, uh, almost all the buildings you saw in that video did not exist in 1979. Um, so we've seen enormous growth, and in the 21st century, by the end of the 21st century, 80% of the world's population will live in cities. They're moving to cities for opportunity. But the way we are growing cities, developing cities, is out of sync. Uh, it's out of sync with nature, and we are um, destroying nature in a way that is ultimately unsustainable. And it is also out of sync with our own uh, human nature. Or maybe it is with our nature. That's actually a question we're going to explore. But we're seeing increased um, uh, social in, uh, uh, variation, uh, uh, income inequality, uh, and inequality of opportunity in the world. So as I thought about all these issues, one of the questions I asked was, the question is, how do we find the right path forward? And in thinking about that question, just like long now, I began to think first in the path backwards, or how were cities actually created? Where did they come from? What was their original purpose? 
what were their founding principles? Because my thought was if we could understand that, maybe we could understand how to make successful cities going forward. I'm going to describe nine C's. It happens that as I was figuring this out, every word that seemed to make sense started with a C. So the nine C's that I have come to realize were the preconditions for creating great cities. And um, the first one is, and they come more or less in sequence, actually, as you look at cities develop. So the first is cognition. Cities are a mental creation, our culture is a mental creation, and we had as a species to develop the capacity to think in certain ways before we could take the steps that led to being cities. These are uh, flints. Interestingly, um, uh, stones have been used and carved for, as tools for about 3.3 um, million years. Uh, in fact, longer than humans, uh, actually pre-human species. Lucy, for example, was thought to have uh, been at a time when people were using stones. And, um, and yet they changed about 50,000 years ago was when stones all of a sudden were attached to sticks to make arrows, to make spears. They were being used in a different way. There was a cognitive shift that happened 50,000 years ago. And another thing, that's when we think that language emerged. And also social relations between people and tribes seemed to have changed back then. And so it was a, a moment of what they, they actually called cognitive modernism all of a sudden emerged. And what was interesting about this time also, we'll, we'll get to some other things that was interesting about this time, but they all come from the um, capacity we think of human beings. All of a sudden there was a shift in our ability to do symbolic thinking to think more about the past and the future, to think uh, more abstractly. Uh, that actually, and we began to see the manifestation of art. We began to see the manifestation of religions. You can see this in the way people bury, bury the burials took place. Um, people, there were no physical structures except for caves. We have no sense that people were actually building places to live at that time. Um, but there was enormous um, cultural flowering happening. The other interesting thing that was happening then is that humans have always worked cooperatively. There is a deep tribal instinct within us, um, and that's actually a strength and a weakness. The, uh, the great biologist uh, and sociobiologist E.O. Wilson has written an interesting book called The Social Conquest of the Earth. And in this book, he says that this ability of humans to work together as groups to, um, uh, to hunt and to share food and to take care of the weak and to take care of the children. We're the only species that does something called alloparenting, which is that um, if your you know, baby's crying, somebody else will pick up somebody else's child and, and nurture it. Or maybe somebody may say, I'm doing the cooking, please take care of my child. There are no other species that do that. It's a unique characteristic, um, but it comes paired with something I was gonna to refer to a little bit earlier. And that is we are both very tribal, but we are deeply wired for the stronger our in-group affiliation, the stronger we feel affection and care and nurturing for others, simultaneously the stronger our out-group hate. And so we actually know there's now MRI studies we can do that show that when, um, uh, uh, that when people feel very deep and loving and compassionate typically towards a group of people, they simultaneously feel much more angry and um, uh, antagonistic towards others. Those seem to be wired in our brain. We had the capacity to overcome that, but that is one of our natural propensities. Another interesting MRI study shows that if you give people those stones I was showing you earlier and you chip them, 
and you put them in an MRI machine, it activates the, um, the language part of the brain. So there is something about tool making and language that are also deeply interdependent. But all these became aspects of a cooperative society. We hunted together very, very effectively. Uh, in fact, um, this human combination of, of cooperation and this in-group, out-group, we believe may have been the reason that ultimately humans conquered the Neanderthals. Remember, the Neanderthals had bigger brains than us, and they may have even been smarter, but they may not have been nastier. And that's an issue we have to deal with. So um, this is another piece of cave art. I find it really interesting. And this, you see this all over the world. People would hold up their hands up against the wall of the cave, and they'd blow. They'd blow dust out of their mouth against the hand and leave these mirror images. And to me, this is also a sense of we-ness. I actually think that the we-ness in which is, I'm going to give you the end of the talk, this we-ness in which we are, um, we work collaboratively, we care for others, we take care of others, is the cure to our ills. And the part of weakness that comes paired with outgroup hate, that comes with us against them, is actually going to be uh, the, what could lead to the end of civilization. But here's a sign, to me, so the question is, what I see um, interesting within all these images is, uh, this sense that people didn't put up their hands alone, they put them up collectively. I also want to just say artistically what's so interesting is notice some of these are in white and some of these are in black and they had an amazing sense of like how to compose this. It's incredibly contemporary. Um, so, and culture keeps advancing. So from 50,000 BC, culture keeps advancing. We're now, the, this is probably in the uh, late teens or 20,000 BC. These are the uh, caves in, in France. Um, really extraordinary art. So look at the work that these people are doing and the, obviously the quality of thinking is going behind it. And they still haven't built a house. We have no sense that there were physical structures that they were creating at that time. And then all of a sudden, astoundingly, 12,500 years ago, this first building is built. It's the first record of a known building. Now there could be other buildings. Remember, they're all buried. We don't know where they all are. But this is the first one. It's in southern Turkey, and it's called Gobekli Tepe. And it's a temple. So what was interesting is all that time from 50,000 years ago to 10, 12,000 years ago, and, and onward too, as we'll see, what people were really trying to do is understand their role in the universe. They were trying to understand what is this relationship between humanity and nature. Who are we? Where are we? And how do we find harmony and balance? Back then, the idea of harmony and balance, because remember, there were uh, weather variations, there were storms, there were all kinds of, there were threats, there were wild beasts, there were things, and the idea of harmony was deeply, deeply important to them. But it's amazing to me that the first building, not only was a temple, uh, the archaeologist who worked on this said, first came, his name is Klaus Schultz, he said, first came the temple, then came the city. Because what we're going to discover is that in almost every ancient city in the world for thousands of years, they were always formed around a temple. There was, you dig down, down, down through the layers, cities that could have hundreds of thousands of people. And when you get to the very bottom layer, there was a temple. That this idea of finding harmony with the universe, of figuring out where balance was, lay at its very, very core. 
This, uh, uh, this building, here's a rendering of it, and, and you see these huge multi-ton stones. They, they, they think it took 500 people to carry them, so it took enormous social organization. They're carved with all these amazing mythic beasts. I mean, the, the imagination, the skill to create such a place. They had enormous festivals around these. Uh, in which they, by the way, they slaughtered oxen and ate them, and, and they actually believe they probably took psychedelics. So, and why this spot? So, the, the, the legends say, and the, the record says, that the reason they made this spot consecrated, the reason they made this spot holy, the reason why they put this enormous temple there was because that was the place that the grains that were going to feed civilization first come from. Now, the grains that we know now as the ancient grains that did feed civilization had not yet actually been, to our knowledge, discovered. I mean, these people have discovered them, but they were minor functions back then. There was no agriculture back then, actually. Um, but they actually identified the spot. And today, when... Um, uh, scientists who follow the genetics of seeds trace their roots back. They come to 20 miles within this spot, and that is where they say the ancient seeds that fed civilization came from. So who do you think was right? The scientists who think it was 20 miles from this spot, or the guys who built this thing who thought it was this very spot? I think it's this very spot. At any rate, there were nine grains that we think are uh, were the source of civilization. And what was very interesting is, so what you'll also see throughout the history of the development of cities is the influence of climate change, of naturally occurring climate change. And so um, uh, around uh, 8,200 years ago, BC, something like that, the, the, um, the climate got very cold. And, um, and when it did, it, the uh, seeds developed, the, the plants to live adapted. And for about a 300-year period, they developed a different characteristic. Their seeds had to become much more concentrated because, and the growing season was much shorter. So the ones that thrive are the ones that like shot up, got their seed together, grew it big and fat, had enough calories in it to store over the winter, and then were, you know, and a hard enough shell to preserve it. Then the winter came, they lay dormant, and they could grow again. That characteristic of seed happened to be what dramatically increased the nutritional and caloric value of seeds. And so civilization grew out of that. Um, we know that there were several different seeds. So einkorn wheat, this map shows the territories in which they grew, the uh, wild emmer wheat, wild barley. And you actually see they all come together in this same spot where the temple was. Um, as these seeds grew and we began to have a fuel for civilization, so calories are the next driver of, remember I'm going through the seas, calories are the next driver. We need energy sources. Cities today need energy sources. But back then it was primary, it initially was from, uh, from these grains. And all of a sudden you begin to see, now we're in the 6,000s, 7,000s, 5,000 BC, you all of a sudden begin to see in the Fertile Crescent, and the Crescent is this, sweep that goes from the Mediterranean Sea and down towards the Persian Gulf, you see the emergence of villages, these little villages. And um, the other thing that happens, a couple thousand years actually after uh, grains, is uh, people start domesticating animals. So you see first, this circle shows where the sheep were first domesticated. And these are very ecologically differentiated in different regions. 
And this is where the wild goats are down on the far right of the slide. You see is where the goats came from. And here is where the pigs came from. And then a little, a couple thousand years after that, they started domesticating figs and grapes and olives. And all of a sudden you see the, the great Mediterranean diet emerge, but also you see these elements that really led um, remember in the Bible, each man by his fig tree, and uh, you could see the, um, how the domestication of the family began. Interestingly, by the way, when we see from bone studies that as domestications happened, as people settled in villages, they actually lived shorter lives. They were physically shorter. They, they seemed to have been unhealthier. And one of the reasons is because when they lived in the wild, they had less exposure to the diseases that happen when people live in, in groups together and when they have to deal with their sanitary wastes. And so the dealing of those issues has actually been per, a perennial issue. We know from the plague, et cetera, cholera, we know that the management of disease is a critical element to the concentration of people. Once you had that network, then what was interesting is you begin to get commerce. Those, those actually, those different communities began to connect and they began to trade. Now, the only reason people trade is if they have something to trade, which means there has to be differentiation too. So what you're beginning to see all of a sudden, we're not at the city level yet, but what you're seeing is differentiation and connectivity and interchange and, and commerce happening together, some more seas. So this is some of the major trade, they're major and minor trade routes. And what they were trading at this point, now we're in the, the four or 5,000 BC era, uh, 4,000 BC, they're trading gold and silver and lapis and copper and alabaster and bitumen and shells, and, um, and they're making things, and people are distinguished for making different kinds of things. There's actually one town, I forgot which one it is, they made a pot, and it was a pot that contained grains, and they figured out how to mass produce it, and you can see it on literally a 1,500-mile range. You can see that same pot that was made. They were disposable. There was a kind of disposable container. Uh, of the time. Um, so now you're having this connectivity. So we're beginning to have this commerce, this differentiation, this connectivity, and that's beginning prosperity. And so the towns are beginning to grow. And as they grow, they grow in complexity. Um, and so the art, you know, we saw the art before, uh, um, the art then begins to grow in stature and grow in symbolism and, and, uh, and uh, require a, a higher level of craftsmanship. It shows the complexity of the society. This, by the way, is from the Pergamon Museum. I'm going to show you a couple other things from there, too, in uh, Berlin, an amazing place. If you're ever in Europe, it's really worth seeing. To, you can really see the roots of civilization there. Um, along with complexity comes the need for greater systems of control. Uh, this is from the Tales of Gilgamesh. This is also in the same museum. And on the left side is the god of chaos. And on the right side is the god of control, who's trying to control it. And that balance between order and disorder, chaos and control, is a key issue to the formation of cities. You cannot have a large city unless you have a control system. And a key part of control then becomes writing. And, and one of the key, the first parts of writing was actually numbers or, or counting or keeping records. And one of the reasons why is because I'm going to go back to the early role of um, the temple. The temple 
was one of its roles was to it was the place that the, the uh, priest was responsible for balancing humans and nature. A second role of the priest was that to mete out justice. He was the respected, fair person that you could trust. Uh, but a third role was that the temple became the storehouses. When people started, you know, getting a lot of stuff, uh, growing a lot of grain, etc., they would bring it to the temple for storage. It would be recorded, and there'd be a fair. People trusted that there was a fair distribution. In fact, the oldest democratic systems in the world are the irrigation systems. These go back to about five, 6,000 BC. So, um, so there's agriculture for probably three or 4,000 years before there's actually irrigation. There's a, they bring a little water here and there, but really sophisticated irrigation systems. The irrigation systems are the oldest democratic systems in the world. They're almost, and you can see this whether it's in Asia, wherever there are democratic, wherever there are irrigation systems, you see this, and the the uh, the irrigators, the people who use the system, uh, elect the most trusted person, who's called the ditch boss, who is uh, different names in different cultures, who is responsible for managing the system for the benefit of all. And he or she is typically, then it was a he, is the one who would say, your field is in the sun, it has a higher rate of evaporation, you get some more water. And your field has uh, sandier soil, and the water disappears, you get more water, whatever. And people trust that person, and if they don't, then they elect somebody else uh, for the common good. So the priests also played that role. And the counting systems were a way of keeping tracks or understanding who contributed what and who was getting what back out. Of course, it turned into language uh, and became a much more sophisticated part of culture. Okay, so all those things as they begin to build and build and build, we're now about 3200 BC, and uh, they end up in Uruk, which is the world's first city. It's a pretty sophisticated city. Um, it is, of course, formed around a temple. This is a rendering of what it looked, we think it looked like. It was a formed around a temple. It was formed around, um, uh, so that remember that idea of a temple, which is a place of justice. It's a place of the fair distribution of goods. It's a place of, uh, finding harmony between humans and nature. It's a place of control between the forces of chaos and the forces of centrality in society. So that is at the basis of Uruk. It's at the base of every city, every village that was created before Uruk, and it's the basis for thousands of years of cities after Uruk. Uh, interestingly, by the way, uh, when the first cities were formed, uh, there was not war. There may have been local conflicts, but the idea of war actually and conquering more lands only appeared about 500 years later. This is also from the Pergamon Museum, and uh, you can just imagine this facade, which, which uh, lined thousands of feet of wall, these kind of carved sculptures, and um, uh, they were plastered and colored and all that stuff. So this is Hammurabi. So now we're about 1790 B.C., Hammurabi is the king of Babylonia, and he has conquered many, many peoples. And he comes up with this extraordinary code, and the code is, how shall we live? Who shall we be? I'm going to give you a quote from, from his code. And you, it's really worth uh, Googling it and reading the whole thing. He says, when Marduk, Marduk, that was the great god, sent me to rule over men to give protection of the right to the land, I did right and righteousness and brought about the well-being of the oppressed. He saw his role as bringing about the well-being of the, of the oppressed. The great gods have called me. I am the salvation-bearing shepherd. 
the good shadow that is spread over my city. In my shelter, I have let them repose in peace, that the strong may not injure the weak, in order to protect the widows and orphans, in order to speak justice in the land, to settle disputes, to heal all injuries, I shall rule to further the well-being of mankind. This was the role of leadership. It's a role, by the way, that I don't think many of our leaders aspire to today. But that sense of that I have power, I've been given power, but I have my power comes with responsibility. My power has a purpose to bring about the well-being of the oppressed so that the strong may not injure the weak in order to protect the widows and orphans, in order to speak justice in the land, to heal all injuries. What an amazing premise for civilization. And the coat of Hammurabi was then put on columns, beautifully carved columns, and spread throughout his city and cities. And one of the reasons we believe that happened was because he had conquered many peoples and they all came, this was not the first coat, but they all had their own local codes. They all had local, ecologically and culturally evolved ways of being. And he needed a more universal one. And so he created this and spread around so to unify diversity into a single purpose. And I believe that is actually another great thing that a city can do. When a city has a vision, when it has a sense of higher purpose, and it embraces the diversity that is within it, it's not asking the diversity to change, but is asking the, uh, the diversity to become coherent about some higher value. I think that really is what makes uh, great cities. So just quickly to review, we have seen cognition, cooperation, culture, calories, connectivity, commerce, complexity. I forgot to mention concentration, but simply uh, density. The, the, we've talked about diversity, but it all needs to be concentrated when it's too spread out. And we saw that happen in the great decades of sprawl in the United States. You lose the energy that happens from the cohesion of people being together. Concentration and control. So these C's, it strikes me, are the necessary preconditions for the formation of cities, the, the very original cities, and I believe they are the necessary preconditions for thriving cities in the future. There are two interesting pathways that cities took, an eastern one and a western one, which I'm just going to briefly discuss. This is the Greek temple. And in Greece, um, you remember Greek philosophy, one of the first things that they looked for was what was the atom? What was the essential core underlying characteristic of things? What was the, you know, the very nature of things? And uh, they viewed it as an individual thing. This, you could reduce everything down to this essence of the atom. So we have a very individual-focused Western culture. We, uh, we think strongly of ourselves and who we are. There was another culture, though. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, so one of the things that came out of that by the, was uh, out of that sense of individuality was incredible entrepreneurship and creativity. Uh, so I view that a, a progenitor of the, or a follower of the great Greek culture was what happened in Florence. Imagine this one square mile of a city in the 1400s gave birth to the entire Renaissance, gave birth to so much of the arts and culture, and literature of what became uh, modern Europe. It was all, so much of it grew out of just that one mile. What that teaches us also is that our cities, um, if we capture our creativity well, can be incredibly generative places. Um, 
But there was another grain that also fueled civilization, and that was rice. And actually, uh, um, uh, there's very some interesting studies. This is uh, the rice area of China. Above it was also a wheat area, and some people, there's a whole theory about rice people versus wheat people, and that they have different cultures and all that, which um, uh, I'm not entirely sure I believe, so I won't go into the theory. But at any rate, uh, the cultures of northern China and southern China are quite different. China followed an entirely different pattern of development. Very early on, same thing. Their villages, their towns, their, their buildings were always centered. First, there was a, a, a temple. And we see that, by the way, in South America. We see that almost wherever civilization emerged. But the, and also the role of their temple was to find the harmony between heaven and earth. That was, that was its point, and it was always built around sacred places. But they had a very quickly, they came upon, you know, about Chinese feng shui and geomancy. They came up with a very structured idea. And that was that the universe followed this nine square pattern uh, in which everything would be divided into nine squares. And in the center, which is number five in this diagram, was where the power spot was. That's where the emperor stayed. That's where the emperor's palace should be. That's the, the leverage point to achieve this balance between humans and nature. So... When they t divided fields, their fields would all be mapped into nine, and each farmer would have a square, numbers uh, one through nine, except number five. Then they would do that, they would harvest that for themselves. They would collectively harvest the center square. They'd take the grains from that center square, and it would go to the village center, where it would be, st that village center was designed in nine squares, and uh, the, uh, they would uh, take the, all the grains would get stored in the emperor's building, which was in the center square. That would go to a regional town, and same thing. The center was where administration and storage was. It would go all the way up until you hit the capital city. This happens to be the Forbidden City, which is built much, much later in, in Beijing. But the, it's also built on the nine-square principle, literally from about 2000 BC until... Um, uh, the 1600s, maybe even a little later, every single farm, town, regional center, small city, large city in China was designed around the same nine square principle, this name form, and it was all to align and it all added up to one great centralized place where the emperor lived and the emperor's job was to balance humans and nature. He was to hold the, he was the holder of the harmony. He was responsible for harmony. And if uh, he failed, that's when uh, we got a new emperor. Um, so uh, what's very interesting about this is that just as there was this master plan in effect, very early master plan that affected all of Chinese civilization, there was this sense, enormous sense that we're all in it together. So I mentioned earlier how the Greeks had the sense of individuation. The Chinese has this sense of collectiveness, this great sense of the great flow, the propensity of all things, the Tao, the wit. But it was all about being together. There was very little sense of individual expression in the Chinese culture from those thousands of years, much more of a sense of a collective sense of whole. I actually believe that the solutions of the 21st century require us to draw from both of these, that our Western culture has become too selfish and too self-centered. And uh, I, uh, I, 
the Eastern culture has actually changed dramatically. It's not what it originally was, but we need to find the place in between. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about where we are in the 21st century. Uh, the world is rapidly urbanizing. It's urbanizing in an almost brutal way in most places. Uh, a lot of building, a lot of housing, a lot of concrete and steel being used. None of the thought that actually went into the building of cities, or the kind of thought about finding harmony and balance between humans and nature that we saw uh, so many thousands of years ago. The population is dramatically growing. By the 2050, demographers say we will stabilize at a population of about 10 billion people. Uh, the population is also growing more middle class. It's growing wealthier. This is a good thing because we have fewer and fewer people in abject and absolute poverty. But what's happening is as people grow more prosperous, they consume more things. And with 10 billion people, the rate of consumption versus the rate of the Earth's capacity to regenerate is going out of balance. And um, our consumption is not only about basic needs, but it's become really about an, uh, a, a sense of, uh, there's a lot of entertainment and perhaps a lot of excess going on in all this. At the same time, the uh, climate is changing, this time because of human. There's some very interesting things that, by the way, happen in history when the climate changes throughout history, but uh, I won't go into all that. But uh, uh, climate change, you see, dramatically affecting the rise and fall of cities throughout history. But this is human-caused climate change, and uh, we do need to find a better way. I love this picture because here we are in, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, and the air, as you can see, that's what it is on a typical Chinese day. But they had this huge TV screen to try and convince people that somewhere in China, the air is actually really good. So we've also seen with climate change that uh, we're having shifts in weather patterns, dryness, and so we're seeing fires, particularly California's experienced some terrible ones recently, uh, and yet also terrible snows in the winter. So we're seeing some weather extremes. We're seeing uh, blackouts, this is Hurricane Sandy. Uh, and um, as I mentioned, with the weather patterns changing, we're seeing dramatically increased drought. Uh, and we have been developing in many of the wrong places. So we are growing our buildings in the places exactly where there's not going to be enough water. And all of this is characterized. The military in the late 1990s came up with a phrase called VUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We were in a VUCA age. Things are extremely volatile, and what that means is that things are less certain, and when you're in a complex system where everything is interwoven together, there is a specific input has an unspecific or an ambiguous output. So it's very hard to do strategic planning. It's very hard to kind of understand where we are and where we're going in our traditional rational mind. We actually need to think differently. Um, we have enormous financial volatility. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, the Greek, you know, it always seems to be happening, the Greek bonds are about to default. And when, um, and there were about $300 billion of bonds that are going to default on about half of them. So say $150 billion of bonds were going to default. And the stock market went down by about $3 trillion. So why? People who own stocks didn't even own the Greek bonds in most cases because the financial systems are deeply interconnected. And this thing about VUCA, this thing about complexity is you get leverage effects. 
So we are living in this age in which we are much more exposed to volatility and uncertainty. And I actually think that pervades a lot of uh, the political issues of our time is that people don't know where they stand or the world around them seems unstable. Um, in 2011, there were all of a sudden riots in London that seemed to make no sense. Where did these riots come from? This is a Google map as to where the riots took place. The deeper the red on the map, the deeper the poverty. And if you look at where the little Google points are, where the riots took place, they didn't take place in the most poor neighborhoods. They actually took place on the edges where the lower middle class and the middle class meet. They took places where the, in the invisible line of income inequality and political inequality and opportunity, those in invisible lines that are etched in every society. And the, it was not the, it was the second generation immigrants, the children, the young teens who felt that they just, there was nowhere more to go. And we're seeing that as actually that sense of, of invisible line that is holding us back is permeates significant parts of America and, and parts of the world. And then the last thing is we have these terrible wars. This is in Syria. Uh, it's actually, it's a whole other talk, but it's uh, also a war that started with climate change. And there are today in the world 60 million uh, refugees, and I'm sure that there are more to come. Enormous uh, displacement. I mean, here we are in the 21st century. It's a time in which we should be building the greatest cities that we can, and we are destroying some of the greatest cities in history. In, uh, I won't go on about that. But uh, so there are a lot of issues in the 21st century that we need to confront. And um, uh, this is a quote from uh, Kenneth Burke in 1935: "People may be unfitted, being fit into an un people may be unfitted by being fit in an unfit fitness." I know it sounds like a funny phrase, but so I think a lot in evolutionary terms and remember Darwin's survival of the fittest, but what he really meant was not the strongest fittest, but those who fit together the best, the ecological fitness fit, fittest. And so we're in a time in which we have a fitness. We do, there is a fitness, you know, we have societies, we have systems, we have um, financial systems, political systems, and all that, that work in a small ecological zone, but they are unfit for the larger challenges of our time. And so the quest for this book that I was writing, my quest my, about cities, my, my question was, how do we find the true fitness that we as human beings and human civilization need so that we can thrive where we all can have well-being in the 21st century? And as I was writing, and I did a lot of research and writing, I would, this book actually started with a different title, and, um, but I would listen to the music of Bach. And, um, and I fell in love with the, his, this piece, The Well-Tempered Clavier. And it all of a sudden struck me that the idea of temperament, which was transformational in the history of music, could actually be a transformational idea also for uh, the challenges that I was trying to deal with. So we're going to go back a little bit in history. Pythagoras about, uh, lived uh, um, about 2000 BC and um, 2500 BC. And, uh, and he came up with this idea. I'm sorry, I got the numbers right. He lived 500 BC. Thank you. It was 2,500 years ago. He lived 500 BC, and he came up with this idea of the music of the spheres. He noticed that the different the spaces between the notes on a lyre 
or a lute, were exactly the same as the distance between the planets. And by the way, pretty amazing that he could measure the distance between the planets. But in fact, he was right. And he said that this is a proportion, it's the golden proportion, and that it exists throughout all the universe. And you could see, and by the way, uh, this proportion exists much in nature. And um, he said, so that's the way everything should be organized. If you want to find harmony, you design things to this proportion. By the way, there are other parts of nature that are not designed to this proportion, but it is a very prevalent quality of nature, and it was a good idea. Uh, by, meanwhile, so this is Pythagoras' teaching, and uh, the woman looking askance is, of course, his wife. Her name was a philosopher named Theano, and what she said is um, she proposed an idea called the golden mean. So he had the golden ratio, she had the golden meaning. What she said was... Not everything has to be so perfect. There's compromise, and sometimes the space in between where two extremes meet is actually where true harmony is. In the issue of music, she turned out to be right. So what was happening was, as long as you were playing alone and in one key, the perfection of tuning, which, so from Pythagoras on, everybody just tuned their instruments in the Pythagorean way, and that worked. But if you tried to move between keys, it turns out that although each key was perfect in its own right, they were imperfect. They were slightly out of joint with each other, and they sounded actually excruciating to listen to. And so music, the Western musical canon, was actually limited until this idea came from China. A Chinese scholar actually figured out this problem and figured out the math of a different kind of tuning system. It came along the Silk Route, came into Europe in the late 1600s, 1687. Uh, a guy named Andres Werchtmeister came up with a new tuning. was called well temperament or even temperament. And that all of a sudden allowed one to go between keys to integrate all the keys uh, in, in what actually became a new technology, the clavier, which we'll see in a minute. And this unleashed Bach to be able to create the well-tempered clavier. It unleashed him to be able to integrate every note and every um, key and scale into an extraordinarily magnificent piece of music. Bach was a deeply religious man, and he wrote for the church, and his mission was to take the architecture of the universe as he understood it, all of its glory and magnificence, but also its humility and its compassion, and to take this and to manifest it on music on earth. And although these notes are written, they're the same, when you play them today, they're the same notes that you played three, four hundred years ago, but you can see the sweep, the arc, the kind of sense of movement within them, and each time that movement comes alive. And he was able to do that because of this concept of temperament, which found the way to integrate all of these different components of music. So I view that as temperament as an operating system. And um, the, this is the uh, clavier, which is the forerunner of the piano. And that was like a new technology. And when we have new operating systems and new technologies and we put them together, we get new opportunities. And again, we are at that time in history where those are both available to us. So we're going to get in a little bit into how we might use them. But before we do, I want to talk about the bottom of the different, before we get to integration, we're going to talk about differentiation and where some of our environmental and social problems come from. Uh, in 1970, the Congress passed a law called NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. 
and it had extraordinary aspirations. So I'm just going to read a little bit. Congress recognizing the profound impact of man's activity on interrelations of all components of the natural environment, particularly the profound influence of population growth, high-density urbanization, industrial expansion, resource expand, uh, exploitation, new and expanding technologies, and recognizing the critical importance of restoring and maintaining environmental quality to the overall welfare and development of man declares the continuing policy of the federal government uh, to create and maintain the conditions under which man and nature can exist in productive harmony and fulfill the social, economic, and other requirements of present and future generations of Americans. This was a bipartisan bill was signed by Republican President Richard Nixon. This was where the American consensus was at that time. And here we are more than 40 years later, and it feels to me like we have gone backwards. But to have a bill in which all of Congress said we want to create and maintain the conditions under which man and nature can exist in productive harmony to fulfill the social, economic, and other requirements of present and future generations. What a lofty ambition. But unfortunately, the way it was manifested was through this, uh, that NEPA requires that we did vast environmental impact statements. And these took major problems and they subdivided them into minor problems. And they, are, they actually force us to disintegrate the way that we think. So I'm going to give you a, uh, an analogy for how uh, uh, to pull these back together. Uh, and it begins with something called biocomplexity. So in biocomplexity, uh, what's very interesting is there is a metagenome. For example, if you go to a river, there'll be, you can find the genomics of the entire river. You can find the genome that has the fish, has the plants. That's why they're all integrated. This is why when humans breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide and trees do the opposite, why we're all tied together is from this metagenome of life. Um, we can... So using that as a thought process, it became clear to me that if our city started with a great vision and then they move forward with a plan and then we establish community health indicators, we'll see what those are, but ways to understand where we are, we, we use the tools of government, regulation, investment, incentives. We measure the outcomes, we compare those to the indicators. So just the way nature is continually co-evolving and it has this genome that's tying it all together, we can be doing, that's a different way of planning than we did under NEPA, but we can be doing that too. This is a vision that the people of Portland through the Portland Sustainability Institute came up with. And you can see in this vision, there's locally grown food, there's taller buildings for them, that's a higher density buildings. They're green buildings, they have windmills on the roof. In the street, you see um, uh, buses and people walking and bicycles and uh, um, uh, streetcars and automobiles. You can see it's, there's parks on the left side and there's diversity on the right side. They have one vision. They now know where they're going as a city. We can measure these things. We can identify the characteristics of those. If you, This happens to be Santa Monica. Many, many cities have these sustainability or community health indicators. So if you look around the chart, it'll have how much affordable housing do we have, how poor is our climate impacts, how well are our students doing in school, how is our health. We can measure hundreds of these, we can identify hundreds of these factors. And then we can move dynamically, we can control our systems um, to, and we can use the tools the government have, which are investments in infrastructure, regulation, um, uh, incentives that they use to continuously move towards the outcomes that we seek. 
Uh, and this has, those outcomes have to be designed through a community-based planning process. I'm gonna skip a couple things because I can see I'm running out of time. The next step is we need to take our infrastructure systems, which are linear systems. So we have designed an entire society in which, for example, most cities in America take stuff in and 180 days later, 98% of it is left as waste. We need to design circular systems where we take things in and we recycle them. So I'll give you some examples of this. This is uh, the water treatment plant in Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia. Namibia is a desert city in southern Africa. Its population was growing. It was running out of water. 40 years ago, an engineer said we should judge water by its quality and not by its history. They took the wastewater, they cycled it back and use it as fresh water. And for 40 years, they have never had a failure. The, city, the system has worked perfectly, and so the city has grown and has grown in prosperity. We need to be doing this in our desert areas. Uh, we've Moving forward, by the way, there's a new plant, waste treatment plant that just opened up in the Washington area that is also taking out the nitrogen and the phosphorus, which are components of fertilizer from the urine in the wastewater. It is taking those out for $100 a ton. It is selling those for $400 a ton to fertilizer manufacturers. We now have waste plants that capture all the methane that comes off of them and not only burns that to create enough energy to fuel the plant, but also fuels the neighborhoods around them. So the waste plants are becoming factories. So imagine if we took every part of our urban system and took it from being linear to, uh, to cyclical and turned it into regenerative uh, factories where we were creating local jobs, we were reducing the impact on the environment, we were creating more prosperity and well-being. And this can be done in centralized ways and it can be done distributed. So we can collect rainwater from roofs, we can collect solar on roofs. Uh, this is the Bullet Center in Seattle, which is a building designed to the living building standard in which it uh, collects more sunlight and rainwater than it uses. Imagine if you then took buildings like that and began to connect them into microgrids, into systems where they were sharing not only their water and their energy, but their, their waste heat. And they were tied together so that, um, and connecting that. You do need base uh, load also, but with fuel cells and with, um, uh, uh, you know, cogeneration and wind and wind power and solar power all tied together. Then what you can begin to create is is much more uh, uh, connected networks, just like the first civilizations were much more connected. And what's great about that is that when one link goes out, another if you create smart systems, another one can take over. It's called self-healing. It creates. Remember, we're talking about enormous volatility in the 21st century, so it creates much more flexibility. We can begin to bring nature back into our cities in all kinds of levels, and we have found that as restorative of people and restorative of place, too. Um, this is, uh, again, a shot of Singapore. Singapore is, by the way, said not only going to bring the nature back in the city, but it has to be biodiverse. So uh, they're a big focus on planting a wide range of species. And we now know that bringing nature back to our river's edge uh, in our, our waterfronts <coughs> is a key part of resilience to rising sea levels and climate change. I want to talk to you about the resilience of people. One of the themes that's very, very important to me, America, I believe, was founded as a land of opportunity. And that opportunity is poorly distributed and becoming more and more poorly distributed. And we now know what the constituent, and it's very place-based. We can see by zip code. We know that there are zip codes in which some people will live 15 years longer than others. We know zip codes about wealth, zip codes about health outcomes. 
education outcomes. And yet we know what the constituents of opportunity are and we know how to make them place-based and local. It starts with affordable housing. This is really critical. I have a friend named Ron Terwilliger who says it's very hard to do homework when you live under a bridge. People need safe, green, affordable housing. They need great education systems. Finland has the best education system in the world. Every school is equally as good. Whether it's in the wealthiest neighborhood, the poorest neighborhood, the most Finnish neighborhood, the most immigrant neighborhood, they're all the same. We need that in America. We need great health care, parks and open space, neighborhood serving markets, arts and sculpture, mass transit, multiple, multiple transit options to tie it together, jobs, and we need what I also, what we're part of that key part of the essential growth of initial cities, that seed of initial cities, a something spiritual that ties us, gives us a sense of our place in the universe. These components, by the way, we can measure them, just as I showed you with the community health indicators. We can see where we are. We can design our cities. We can design our neighborhoods and communities. We can invest in them. We can invest in the human infrastructure, physical infrastructure, to achieve these. Um, and one of the most important things we need to do is to grow the social infrastructure. In 1997, there was a great heat wave in Chicago and almost nine, over 900 people died. A sociologist named Eric Kleinenberg mapped where they died and what he discovered was the, um, uh, in the wealthy white neighborhoods had a much lower death rate than the poor black neighborhoods. But there were two poor black neighborhoods that outperformed the white neighborhoods. And the reason why was they had a very strong, very compassion-based social networks growing out of churches in which the elderly were checked on every day. These networks existed long before the heat wave. But when the volatility came, when the heat wave came, they had built the community muscle of interconnection. And that is what saved people's lives. And that sense of human connection and compassion, I believe, is a key part of our resilience needed in the 21st century. There's a disease that is affecting our children that is affecting all of us called ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And ACE is abuse, it's family dysfunction and neglect. And so, for example, if um, uh, a, uh, a, parent, a child is in a room where there is um, uh, domestic violence taking place, if they are evicted from a home, if they are physically or sexually abused, a whole series of these, these three categories of abuse, dysfunction, and neglect. It deeply affects the child, and if the child experiences four or more by the time they are three, it rewires their brain. It puts them in the permanent fight-flight mode so that when they're young, they're in the recessive uh, flight mode. And so when they're in school, they can't pay attention because their brain is always looking for the next threat, even if it hasn't happened for a couple of years. And they can't form social relations because they don't trust anybody. And when they become a teenager, they move into the fight mode, high-risk behavior and uh, high teenage pregnancy. We now know this is deeply tied to disease. Uh, Kaiser Permanente started this with a study of 17,000 people in the San Diego area. By the way, mostly people who are white, college-educated, and suburban. And what they discovered was that if you had four more ACEs, you would have 236% more chance of arthritis, higher chance of asthma, cas uh, cancer, diabetes, heart attack. So this disease has huge, uh, this uh, social cost, it also has, um, so this is just the physical side, it obviously has mental health sides, much higher rates of suicide, much higher rates of, of school dropout, et cetera. Um, and uh, it leads to uh, 20 years if you have uh, 
um, six uh, or more ACEs, then it leads to 20 years less in life. So this is a disease that is, a, that is becoming more prevalent in this modern and complex and volatile age, and it's one that I believe is, might be one of the keys of multi-generational poverty, and I believe it is also perhaps a key to the, um, the lack of sense of commonality that our nation is facing. It has enormous economic tolls. Uh, it costs $124 billion a year for each child year. That means all the four-year-olds now who suffer from ACEs throughout their life will cost society $124 billion. And the next year, the new four-year-olds will cost society $124 billion and on and on. Um, it is not good. We know there are solutions. We know that, and they are a mixture of, so we know that meditation actually really helps. It actually rewires the brain, takes us out of our emotional center. We know yoga helps because trauma is embodied. Cognitive behavioral therapy is essential. San Francisco, by the way, is the leader in something called trauma-informed care. Much of this work, by the way, came from the extraordinary work of a doctor in San Francisco uh, working in the Hunters Point area. Her name is Dr. Nadine uh, Burke Harris, and uh, she has really shown how we need to bring affordable housing managers, family doctors, uh, family therapists, um, the school system, and the family itself all together. And when we do that, we can actually address this issue. Uh, she's doing amazing work, and the city, as I said, is a real leader in thinking about how to solve these problems in its public housing. Uh, the other, th um, I'm going to skip all this. Uh, and just the last point is that the, we don't address this well in the United States. We spend far too much on the symptom, which is healthcare. This is how much we spend on healthcare, and you'll see the far left is, these are all the OECD nations. America spends by far the most. This is what the other nations spend. So you see many, we're in the middle, many of the nations spend more than us. When you combine spending on healthcare and spending on affordable housing, on prenatal care, on um, mental health, on uh, social services, uh, on high quality education. When you actually spend those, you can spend much less on healthcare because you're solving the problems. You create a more equitable society, you create greater societal well-being. If you remember back to the very beginning, the role of the priest was to oversee the fair redistribution of societal benefits for the benefit of all. And this to me seems to be one of the access points. So in summary, it seems to me there, there are three things that we need to be doing. We deeply need to be integrating humans and nature in our cities. Our cities are gonna get more dense. As they get more dense, we can make them smarter and greener and bring nature back into them. We need to imbue them with compassion. I actually believe that compassion is that missing fitness. It is, altruism is our adaptive solution. It is the pathway forward. It is the great integrator. It is the place in which we think of we rather than me. It is that place of balance in which I think the best of human society can move forward. We need to actually have symbols of that. We need to actually take these ideas, the, the, the extraordinary beauty and harmony of nature, which Bach so deeply understood, and the compassion that we also, that our religious leaders have taught us and have been keys to part of our civilization. We need to combine these into actually the places that we build. And I want to end with a quote from Christopher Alexander, uh, a Berkeley-based uh, architect who says, making wholeness heals the maker. As we dedicate ourselves to creating whole places, that heals us too. 
It is a regenerative, making wholeness is a regenerative act. And that is what I hope you will go forward and do. Thank you. Johnson, I, um, I want a little bit of the skin in the game angle here. Yeah. Uh, third generation real estate in a red hot city like Manhattan is pretty interesting. Say a little bit about third generation, say a little bit about being a real estate person now. Got it. So um, I grew up in a wonderful family of developers, mm -hmm. people with enormous integrity. My family's handshake was as good as a contract. Uh, they built market rate rental buildings primarily, some affordable housing, but primarily that's what they built in New York and they spread a little around the East Coast. I was, ever, I was a child of the 60s, deeply moved by civil rights, deeply moved by the environmental world, and I wanted, I, I deeply believed that one could integrate a social mission and environmental mission in a for-profit format. And What did your family think of that? And my family, uh, they, they were, they, they're very generous and good-hearted people that they felt business was business and philanthropy is philanthropy. So in 1989, I left the family company and started my own company mm -hmm. as a mission-based for-profit. One of the things that's very clear is that unless we make projects that are profitable, no one's going to copy them. Right. And so actually the first project we did was in downtown, I work all over the country, in downtown Denver. I took a full city block, an old department store called the Denver Dry Goods Building. It was a time in which people were moving out of the city. Cities were emptying. And to make a long story short, we came up with a model for how to make it green. Actually, you worked with Amory Lovins, the Rocky Mountain Institute on that part, how to make a green, mixed income, mixed use, historic preservation, uh, transit-oriented development. It was everything. And it was incredibly successful. The city took that model, and within three years, 23 other buildings in downtown Denver were renovated with the same model. It's one of the key things that brought, there's a thriving city now that brought people back to the city. So part of the mission of my company is to do things, to do them first, to do them well, to create new models, but they got to work so they can be duplicated. And one of my goals in this book is to have as uh, big an idea as I can have, but everyone has to be held to my developer's test. It has to actually be implementable and financeable, or it's not going to grow. So Adam asks, as someone with experience in development, uh, how do we encourage private developers to build and plan in ways that are good for the collective? Must it all be done with regulation um, by national and regional government or inspiration or what? Or can so, they make more money doing that? What are so we it's, it's a combination of all those things. First of all, I'm a big believer in regulation, I hate regulation. So I believe in building codes, I believe in zoning codes, I believe in a lot of the regulation that is for the common good, that goes back to Hammer Rabbi. I also find I'm stuck with a lot of unnecessary and frustrating and ridiculous re regulations. Wasn't it Hammer Rabbi said if you built a house out in yeah. the street, you will be, uh, I guess, crucified, as I recall, no. in the street where you've... No, no, he, <laughs> well, but he did, I don't remember that part, but I definitely know as he said, Here's the building code. If your building falls down and kills somebody, we kill you. Right. That proved to be very. That proved to be a very effective building code. So, um, uh, at any rate, we do need good regulations. We also need incentives. We also need government to make investments. I love the fact that the state of California is doing high-speed rail. We need we need investments in climate-adapting solutions. 
Um, we need to create the frame. We also need to do a change in culture. I was one of the first, there were others too, who built green affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And when I started, people thought I was nuts. We have changed the culture of affordable housing. And so now, certainly in the Bay Area, all new affordable housing is being built green and mm -hmm. although throughout much of the country. So industries have cultural practices too. And mm -hmm. as good models are done, the in industries evolve. So, so you we can move the norms and then the norms so, right. so are going in this direction. Can they keep going in that direction? Absolutely. You know, oh, keep pushing the edge? Or you what? can totally keep pushing the edge. And we see, we actually see a lot of positive, certainly in the green building side, we're seeing enormous uh, continuous advancement, continuous improvement. And we see an industry really interested in continuous improvement also. So we've had a previous San Francisco mayor here. And one of the questions that came up there is, uh, he said that San Francisco pays very close attention to Vancouver, to Portland. It feels kind of competitive with them, trying to get greener than that. How do cities learn from each other? Do they just have visiting mayors or, or the real estate guys go from town to town making green things happen? How's that um, work? Cities are doing an amazing job of learning from each other. It's something that, by the way, nations and congresses could do. Right. But cities are, they, they, they function in a realm we call coopetition. They're all competing for more jobs and, and prestige, but they their networks such as the C40 or C60 now, the... Um, uh, Say more about the C40, C60. I guess it's well beyond but, 60 now. What but, is that? Well, so that's something that... Um, uh, I don't remember who initially founded it, but it was... Bloomberg was well, probably in that one. He, well, he didn't found it, but he, he, he mm -hmm. sponsors and it has taken over. But there, there are many national and global organizations, ICLE is another one, which helps cities share best practices. Mm -hmm. And cities are very generous in doing... They also see this export business. So, for example, the city of Rotterdam now views itself as the leading exporter of solutions to rising sea level. And it has a whole engine... The, the, um, the government actually promotes its engineers who, who mm -hmm. are the best in the world at this, and they are very, very good at it. Mm -hmm. um, but cities are, are very open about sharing solutions. Why? Why do you think that? Why does that not it's, it, work so well with other entities, states, or nations? Why, why cities? It's some, cities have this, this focus, and it, they... They are more cooperative than competitive. What's going on? They're, they're competitive. As I said, they're cooperative. There's nothing, by the way, we can be, it's not black and white. We can be cooperative mm -hmm. and competitive, but there is a, a flourishing of new ideas. We're really seeing an amazing, re I think the 60s, 70s, and 80s were kind of the low point in city history. And we're now seeing, we haven't hit the high point yet, but we're seeing an enormous flourishing of ideas and uh, exchange going on as, and, um, and willingness to learn. Uh, from each other. Are you international in your activities now, or is this all U.S.? Uh, I'm primarily U.S., but I do do consulting and advisory work internationally. One of the most interesting things I did was um, work in Sao Paulo on creating an affordable housing plan. So, I mean, the scholarship for this book was considerable. A lot of it was books and stuff. Were you traveling and visiting places and picking up cool ideas? Absolutely. Where best? What was most exciting? The, actually, I'll tell you, the most exciting thing I, I came this is a place I have not been, but that I read. So in 1990, the city of Medellin, and I remember this in 1990, was considered the most dangerous city in the world. There was a huge amount of drug, the drug cartels were there. It was a brutal, violent place. 
In 2013, it was voted the greenest, most sustainable city in the world. How did that happen in 23 years that they completely transformed the culture of the city? They and they literally, they, they took a pathway that surrounded the city that had been called the path of death. It's where the drug dealers would hang the bodies to stake their territory. And it's now the path of life. It's surrounded by preserved land and community gardens. Usually that happens with one mayor that gets to stay yes. in office because he or she is doing the right thing. Did right. that happen there? So that happened there, but it also happens by building. This is why a key is this sense that we're all in it together. You know, um, I talk about we have a culture today of personal maximization. And what we really need is a culture of systems optimization. When the system is optimized, then all its components do well. That's really what ecology is. That's the, that's the pathway of nature. And I believe the cities that focus on optimization of the whole for everybody are the ones that thrive the best. Um, David Margla asks, um, do cities need mythologies of their own? And apart from all these cities, uh, what are the communities of different cities' myths? It's more about this urban mythology and temple and spirituality. And uh, you know, this can get a little too huggy pretty quickly. What are we talking about here? So, <laughs> so I, well, so for example, Saskatchewan's motto is, we are the potash capital of the world. Potash capital of the world. Right. I don't think that gets you far. I, you know, I don't think that creates the community spirit that advances you versus Medellin, which said, we are the city of life. And they take every child's life seriously. They take, and by the way, um, other than saying we're the big apple, I don't think New York has a motto. I don't know if San Francisco has work, a motto. Work, work. There's a whole song about it in the yeah, So. Um, so I actually think having a common ethos and a sense of who we are and where we're all going collectively is very important. Don't cities that have been around for a while kind of fall into a myth whether they want to or not? I think all institutions that have been around for a while tend to fall into a myth about their self-importance. So if that's the case, then presumably part of what a well-tempered city will do will acknowledge the myth that is built up around it. Right. And you know, Los Angeles, we're the world capital of entertainment, whatever right. it may be. Uh, San Francisco, we just horse around, and sometimes things get interesting. Uh, <laughs> and you know, identify the the most sort of inspiring aspect of the mythology that has grown any anyway, and then uh, leverage that into cool things. I think leveraging a city's strengths is really important, understanding what they are. And, but there's another key part, which is to make sure that the benefits of it are equally distributed. And uh, in the book, I did an interesting thing where I analyzed the, um, the equality of the city, the prosperity, the GDP of the city, and the well-being of the city. And you can see the best cities are the ones where uh, those are, are the most equal or the most in balance with each other. Um, I think that's I, I think that sense of environmental balance and human and social balance and care is really important to the thriving of cities. What we see, by the way, throughout history is that whenever there is um, population growth, overconsumption of resources, and then climate change hits, mm -hmm. if there's income inequality, the city collapses. 
Well, hmm. uh, we've got some cities with serious inequality. Rio comes to mind. Right. Uh, squatter cities and so on. And one of the things that cities do is develop their own internal economics. Right. And uh, when you have both wealthy people and poor people in the same city often slammed right up against each other, like in Rio and Sao Paulo and so on, you've got people with too much money and not enough time. People with not enough money, but a lot of time that goes with you know, not having work. And the one hires the other. And in, uh, in Rio, the, the maids and the guards and the drivers and the nannies and so on walk to work from the slum over here to the wealthy mansions just down the street. That sounds economically not so bad. So first of all, I don't believe that poor people have a lot of time. There's actually... A, it's hard work being poor, damn it, straight. There's a, there's a lot of hard work being poor. Yep. And... Um, the, the, you described the beginnings of integration. I want, I'll go back to Medellin. One of the amazing things they did was they said these poor people are isolated, they're in hillsides, they're in slums. Mm. How are we going to connect them? The roads are too, we can't put roads in, they're too steep. What so did they what they did put they? in ski lifts. They, they took Swiss ski gondolas and put them in Medellin. It's incredible. And all of a sudden they unleashed all those people from the slums so they could get the jobs. And at the places where the ski lifts land, mm -hmm. put schools and libraries. That's cool. That's seriously. Hey, San Francisco has hills. We can. Right. Um, okay. So C.C. Huang says you mentioned the problems caused by income inequality and affordable housing issue in every city. And boy, is it big in San Francisco right now because the sort of median income right. or something has been going up, and and uh, it's making working and living here uh, unless you're in a unicorn right. hard. What's the solution, please? Okay, so first I'm going to define, I'm going to define the problem a little more. Mm -hmm. It costs $700,000 in San Francisco to build a new affordable housing apartment. That's the most expensive in the country. So it's got to be subsidized or what? It has to be subsidized, but we'll get to that in a minute. And for the average apartment rent today in San Francisco, uh, you, one needs an income of $160,000 a year to be able to only spend 30% of your income on housing. Mm -hmm. So you have an so there's only one solution to this, and that is you have to build your way out of it. And uh, you you know you need more affordable housing. It, it has to be built, and that and San Francisco makes it very hard to build. So so the units the, in people's backyards so or high rise or what? So you need density, and you need density in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. What's interesting in that second to last image or third to last image I showed you mm -hmm. was of a very green city that was much taller. Mm -hmm. that what you, it's what's in, I'll go to, to the um, Singapore. Singapore's done an amazing job of this. That as you build higher density, all of a sudden you create more mass transit, more cost effectively, you make more connectivity, more walkability, and you can actually create more preserved open space. And that is the bargain. The bargain is higher density of which, so in New York City now, new law, but 30% of all new development essentially has to be affordable. And so you, you need to create more mixed income housing. We don't want to create ghettos. Um, and remember, if, if under $160,000 a year, you can't afford housing in, in San Francisco. Well, I'm not talking about for homeless. I'm talking about for people who have jobs and are hardworking. Mm. 
we need to create more mixed income housing. We need to create higher density, connect it with more transit systems, and at the same time, find the space to create more parks and open space. So you got a lot of <clears throat> high rollers and Hudson Yards and places like this that are building ever more elite, uh, multi-million dollar condos right. uh, that are empty most of the time, right. which doesn't exactly add to the fabric of the city. Um, should that be regulated against, or, so, or go ahead and carve the money off of that and use it for something else, or what? So two different. There's two answers to that. So okay. first of all, in New York City, the um, the tax code and all the incentives were aligned so that in the rental side, this was not taken care of on the condo side, but it's now going to be. But on the rental side. Uh, the most profitable way to build is what's something called 80-20 housing. 20% affordable, 80% market rate. If you look at the standard apartment building that any for-profit developer is building in New York City, almost every one of them is 20% affordable hmm. because the incentives work that way. And it works fantastically well. It has not been enough to house. We have a huge affordable housing issue in New York too. Mm -hmm. But that kind of what's called inclusionary building is, uh, is one of the key paces to start. The other thing about affordable... So you've done this. You've done 80-20. Yes. It sounds like. I have one that's going to start construction in a couple of weeks. And, and how and does it work out financially for it, you? As I said, it's designed... The whole program is designed so it's just slightly better. So that, mm -hmm. that's why I said, you know, the, the almost every new rental building built since the 1980s in New York City has been built under this program because it made economic sense. Hmm. It was not designed for the condo market, but it was designed for the rental market. Now, New York also has rent control. Did that work? Um, depends on, on whose side you're on. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but uh, uh, um, I happen to not be a fan of rent control. Uh, Say why? Okay. So I actually remember I, I've been saying over and over that I actually believe that there are um, collective problems. We need to collectively solve them together. Mm -hmm. And what rent control does is it, it, um, it makes individual landlords responsible. Uh, I'm going to give you two different sides of this answer. But mm -hmm. it makes individual landlords responsible depending on, on the age of their tenants, a variety of other factors, at least in New York, as to whether their rent is affordable or not. And I feel that's an inappropriate burden on, on specific, it's, it's not a universally applied thing, it ends up being spottily applied. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what I also deeply believe in was called affordable housing preservation. Say more. So um, there are buildings that are in affordable housing programs that are coming to the end of their life that are aging out. Hmm. There are um, buildings that we call naturally occurring affordable. They may be in a nice neighborhood in the Bronx that are lower rent, or that used to be in Potrero Hill that were lower rent. Hmm. And um, uh, we can design programs, and our company, this is one of the largest growth areas of our company. We actually buy these buildings. Mm -hmm. We preserve their affordability. We make them greener. We bring social services to the residents. And we can do that with financing in a way that makes it profitable. And does this also then help maintain sort of continuity in the neighborhood? Because that seems to be one right. of the essences of uh, good city life is that it doesn't change out from under you a lot where you live. Yes. So one of the uh, one of the cheapest ways to provide affordable housing is to preserve the affordable housing that we have right. and to invest in it to make sure that it's safe, doesn't have lead, that it doesn't have mold, that it's green, clean, mm -hmm. Um, and, and then surrounded by the other elements of community of opportunity that I mentioned. So we not only need 
great affordable housing, we need great schools, health care, all that other pieces. All right, let's talk about schools, because the pattern we see all over the world, as near right. as I can tell, is that um, you know the, the square foot value of downtown and near right. downtown becomes so high that uh, once the family starts having children, right. uh, they're going to go to the suburbs. And uh, we have the San Francisco phenomenon of uh, a lot of the high-tech companies that are in startup right. mode are in the city. Right. And they got red-hot coders moving from one another. As soon as they want to settle down, they go get a job at Apple or Google or some laid-back, you know, uh, family-oriented company, and uh, they go suburban. What I know of those companies, those people work pretty hard and uh, no question so, of working hard and long. But 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 the schools they're looking for are there, not here. But, so that's an interesting San Francisco problem. Interestingly, in New York City. Uh, we are increasingly growing public school options, charter school options, and private school options so that more and more families are staying in, the, many families are staying in the city. We're actually seeing a, mm -hmm. an interesting phenomena, which an inflow of grandparents who are retiring to be and moving to the city to be near their grandkids. That would be cool. So that that's, a, that's, by the way, not just in New York. That is a growing urban phenomena. People used to retire and go to what are called the sand states, Florida and Arizona. Mm, and, yeah. Right, Southern California. Now they're retiring to cities to be near their grandkids. Um, Does this mean, hmm, I mean, but the ideal school, as I understand it, is a school that you feel okay about your kid walking to school. It's close enough and right. it's safe enough that that can happen. Uh, walking, so I'm going to give you a, an interesting example. Uh, that's in the book, actually. So in 1970, there's a great school desegregation order. Mm -hmm. And um, I contrast what happened in two cities. So in, in Detroit, there was a, a huge protest against it. Actually, the John Birch Society burned the school buses. Uh, the city at that time was 80% white, 20% black after desegregation. The whites all moved to the suburbs, the city of uh, Detroit is now 96% minority, mm -hmm. and um, the schools, we know what's happened. Detroit's done very, very poorly. Mm -hmm. um, Louisville, Kentucky, a southern city, actually mm -hmm. took a different tack to the same desegregation order. They, um, they said, we're going to combine our city and county school system so you can't move and get away from it. We're going to make every school under the same rule, and therefore we have a commitment to making every school equally good. That's, that's we're all in it together. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the city or the suburb, inner city, wealthy neighborhood, they're all going to be as equal. Louisville decided it. this because they had a strong mayor, or what happened? They actually decided because of the leadership of two families. Hmm. The Bingham family, mm -hmm. which owned the newspaper and uh, the TV stations, etc. Interesting. Uh, and the Foreman family, the Brown family, which owned Brown Foreman, the biggest employer in town, and the kind of the Brown Foreman liquor company. So the civic leader show is. It sounds like the evil folks, right? You know, the, the no, no. company Sig town and no. and uh, the the people who own the newspaper. Civic leadership. This worked so well that about a decade ago, the city and county governments merged. They just said, and what has happened? Can you do that? You can do that. By the way, the first city to do it was Indianapolis. Did this, and they called it, I've heard, not the Great Convergence. They had some name for it. Anyway, they did it in the, I think, the late 80s, early 90s. It was very cost effective. Um, the what bottom, do you gain when you merge the city and the county? We have it here, but it's, we're on a peninsula. It sort of happened anyway. So when you, when you merge them, then you don't have, it's much more cost effective. You don't have 
you know, all this duplication, but um, you get this, you get regional cooperation. Ah. So let's go back to Louisville. So what happened is now all of a sudden you have a region committed mm -hmm. to a great school system. Well, so, well, well. All of a sudden, by the way, talk about busing. What happens if the best school is in a poor neighborhood? but you really want your kids to go to is the best school and it's a little far away. You want your kids bus there. They completely changed the psychology of everything. So now let's talk about two decades later what happened. Louisville has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. And one of the reasons why is because they generate these great young people who make fantastic employees because they're people who've grown up with diversity. And they stay in town. They and they stay in town. Well, what's out. happening now is that companies from all around the world who want to settle into a low-cost environment look around and they see Louisville and they see that they have these very high-functioning young people coming out of the school system. And so it's turned out to be a great economic boon. The point is hmm. that, um, that this school issue is a very, very important issue. Mm -hmm. I think we need to solve it with the approach that we're all in it together. We're going to make every school great. I like that. Build the cities, run the schools. I think you're on absolutely the right track. And thank you for showing us the way here. Thank you so much. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.